We're joined by barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers with Legally Speaking. Morning, Michael Mulligan. How are we doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting things on the agenda today. I know you and I have talked about uh, administrative law in the past and the various standards of review. And I remember there was Dunsmuir one case, then I think it was Lavalov was another one, and patently unreasonable. It's all quite complicated, but it's coming into sharp focus here with a recent decision to award tenants a certain sum of money. Set this up for us. Yes, indeed. So the the uh, background of this case uh, involves uh, some changes that were made uh, relatively recently to the residential tenancy uh, legislation in BC uh, that uh, provides that if a uh, landlord uh, has the audacity to uh, end a tenancy um, so that uh, uh, they can move into it, uh, if they fail to move into it within a reasonable period of time, uh, then uh, the landlord can be responsible for paying the tenant what amounts to a, a windfall of 12 months' rent. Uh, and so we're seeing an increasing number of cases where uh, tenancies are terminated so that a, a landlord can occupy the uh, premises. Yes. Uh, and then the former tenants making, they're naturally, somebody's incentivized to make the argument because of how much money they could get. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, the former tenants made that kind of a claim, uh, and uh, it uh, resulted in a uh, award of $34,180. Wow. Full year's rent plus uh, filing fees. Uh, and this case, like uh, uh, an increasing number of cases where these sort of windfill, windfall awards are being given to tenants, are winding up in court for judicial review uh, because the amount of money involved is substantial enough to make that uh, process worthwhile. Uh, now, when you want to go to, you can't simply go to court uh, and ask a judge, well, what do you think of all this? <laughs> Should the former tenant have gotten $34,000? Uh, the idea of the Residential Tenancy Act in BC is to have those kind of administrative decisions made by adjudicators and not have all of the cases winding up in court uh, because that's time-consuming and expensive, of course, right? Yeah. Uh, we try to delegate these things. So what's happened is in the Residential Tenancy Act, it sets out uh, that uh, a review, a judicial review of a decision, can only occur if the judge concludes that a, the decision of the adjudicator was patently unreasonable. Hmm. That's the language used in the Act. And you're right, there have been efforts to try to uh, curtail various different standards for judicial review of administrative decisions, but this piece of legislation, like others, has that language right in the legislation. Hmm. And so that's been interpreted to mean a decision which is openly, clearly uh, unreasonable, or another quote from another case was, the result must almost border on the absurd. <laughs> okay. <So> that's, what <laughs> the, <laughs> that's the standard, a fairly high bar to meet. Yes. But here's the fact pattern. Uh, and it's an interesting one, and it bears on this section, so people should know about it. The background uh, is that uh, there was a, a fellow whose parents owned a home. Uh, the elderly parents lived in the basement, and they were renting out the top part of the home to the tenants. Um, the uh, son of the owners of the home was helping them do that, I guess, with paperwork and so on. Sadly, the uh, uh, husband, or the father of the person who was doing the rent renting, uh, developed was diagnosed with cancer, uh, and so the uh, elderly parents, the one of whom had cancer, 
wanted to use the full home so that people, family members who were staying there to help the father with his care would have a place to stay. Uh, and so they gave notice to the tenants uh, that the uh, they would have to move out on two months' notice so that uh, the uh, top part of the house could also be used to help uh, the father with uh, care while he was being treated for cancer. Yeah. Um, and the person who gave the tenants the, that notice was the son, right? The son of the elderly people who owned the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's fine. And in fact, the Residential Tenancy Act defines what a landlord is in Section 1 to mean it can include the person who owns the property, but it can also include somebody who's the agent for the owner or another person on behalf of the landlord who's helping them do something, which makes sense, right? Because you could have family members helping or you could even have property owned by a corporation, which is just a piece of paper. So somebody's got to help do various things, right? Now, the problem arose here uh, because... um, the section that deals with uh, who has to move in when this kind of a notice is given also uses the term landlord. But it's defined differently, and it's important that it be defined differently uh, because the intention, it's section 49 of the Act, is to allow somebody who owns the property to move into it themselves, right? That's the purpose for which you can give two months' notice and require somebody to move out. If you didn't redefine what landlord was, if you left the definition of landlord as somebody who's helping the person who owns the home, you could uh, a landlord could evict anyone at any time by saying, well, would you like to move in and pay more rent? Fine. You're now my helper. Go over and give the tenant notice that they've got to go. <laughs> right? okay. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. So you're it can't be landlord like that. Though. All right. That's absurd. So All right. The problem here is that the that word, landlord, is redefined to mean for the purpose of requiring somebody to move out, that has to be somebody who has uh, an interest in the property. They have to have like at least a half interest like uh, in the property as an owner of the property. That's the idea. And the adjudicator in this case, the arbitration, wrongly uh, applied a test of whether the son, the helper, had himself moved into the property rather than the evidence that the elderly father and mother were taking it over for their own use, right? So the family members could be there if they're helping with the cancer treatment. Um, And so because the adjudicator just got that wrong, the uh, judge on this judicial review found that this was the kind of decision which was patently unreasonable, right? A result bordering on the absurd. Yes. Uh, And so even though the standard is very high, in this case, uh, that the uh, happily the elderly parents cleared the standard, uh, and so uh, the matter will be remitted for a new hearing, having had the judge point out that there is a different definition of what a landlord is for the purpose of uh, who has to move in, and it doesn't need to be the person who handed the notice or signed the notice and gave it to the tenants, which is what the tenants were arguing and what the adjudicator wrongfully found, applying the general definition rather than the, the specific one. So the point here is that the people moving in have to be the person who has the beneficial owner of the place, not the person helping them out. And because the adjudicator focused on, did the person helping them out move in, it was patently unreasonable. The bigger take about all this, again, is that we should give some careful consideration to whether all these sort of um, efforts to interfere with what are ordinarily 
private arrangements, right? The very nature of contracts is usually two people agreeing to something as between them that they both want. Yes. Not things where one of the people doesn't want it at all (laughs) and we're forcing them to continue doing something. When you try to force people to do things they don't voluntarily want to do, you're going to wind up with all kinds of litigation and the toothpaste tube is going to pop out in different ways the more you squeeze it. And that's really where we've gotten to with residential tenancy legislation in British Columbia. The government response to an inadequate supply of rental uh, accommodations has been to try to clamp down on uh, landlords like this couple um, in the hope that somehow that's going to solve the problem when really what it's doing is producing all kinds of litigation, potentially unfair results like this one would have been, but for the judicial review with large amounts of money involved. And of course, for anyone hearing any of this, who would want to put themselves in this kind of a position, Hmm. right? It's just going to discourage people from doing things that you would want them to do, like saying, well, we don't need the upstairs of our house right now. I guess we can rent that out. That's desirable. Yeah. But if you turn it into a legal nightmare for anyone who uh, chooses to do that with the possibility of the person who manages to rent the place having the benefit of potential windfall uh, sums of money going to them, who in their right mind would want to put themselves in that position? People like these elderly people who could rent out the top of their house are going to make the rational decision. Forget that. Uh, that's a nightmare. Look what happened to these people, right? Or look what I heard on the radio or read in the newspaper. That's a disaster. You don't want to do that. Uh, And so an effort to try to improve things for tenants by clamping down on landlords and making uh, these kind of uh, rules in the long term, I don't think is going to be helpful. It's not helpful. It, It may offer some windfall benefit to people who are currently tenants and are able to avail themselves of these things, but it is really going to have the opposite effect of what we desire, which is people to voluntarily build places and rent them out or rent out parts of their home or all those kind of things that actually create space for people to live. We don't create space for people to live uh, by imposing these kind of rules, and we're seeing the uh, output of that uh, in the legal system. So Hmm. that's the story of the $34,000 award uh, against the the elderly people with cancer. Happily, that was overturned, and they can go back and try again reading the correct definition. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking, here on CFAX 1070. More right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, legally speaking on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Is the wording, or actually no, that was the one coming up. I'm reading $100,000 in damages upheld on appeal for backing out of a real estate deal. What's the situation with that? Yeah, the background of this is that a couple entered into a contract to purchase a home. Uh, and uh, they entered into the uh, contract, and then uh, after signing it and sending a check for the deposit, uh, the next day they got cold feet and changed their mind. Uh, And so they uh, left a voicemail for their real estate agent saying, stop, we don't want to complete this, Uh, and then went and put a stop payment on their $50,000 deposit. Um, What happened then, unfortunately for the couple, um, is that the uh, people who owned the home continued to try to sell it because obviously uh, those people weren't going to uh, pay up. Uh, And ultimately, after a a few more weeks of effort, they did manage to sell the house, but only for $100,000 less uh, than the contract they entered into with the people who got cold feet. 
and when that happens, uh, the people who have the uh, contract to sell the home for more can, did, and, and would <laughs> sue, as you would expect. Yeah. And what they can sue for would be the difference. You agreed to pay, in this case, 935000 we only managed to sell it several weeks later for 835000 So we lost $100,000. Um, and people should, first of all, know that's how it works, right? And so if you had it particularly in a falling market, you could wind up on the hook for a lot of money. Now, here, what happened is the uh, couple who was sued for not completing this deal blamed their real estate agent. And said, "Well, we may be responsible. You know, we may be responsible for the hundred thousand dollars, but really, it's the real estate agent's fault because the real estate agent they claimed hadn't sufficiently warned them of what could happen had they not followed through and completed the deal, having made the deal and sent the check." Yeah, that was their claim. Uh, the real estate agent's uh, response to that was, "Well, no, no. Uh, yes, we we told you instead that you should speak to a lawyer ASAP." telling them to talk to a lawyer and get legal advice about what may happen to you. Now, uh, that's the fact pattern at the trial. Unfortunately, at the trial, the judge made a bit of a mistake uh, in that the, uh, the judge misunderstood what the evidence was about uh, whether the uh, couple that was being sued had waived privilege over what the lawyer had told them. Uh, in fact, they had waived privilege and said, yes, the lawyer could disclose their file and the advice that they gave. The judge just seemed to misunderstand that uh, and drew an adverse inference against the couple, saying, well, you didn't let us find out what advice the lawyer gave you when you're claiming that, uh, you know, you uh, were you know, lulled into some false sense of security by your real estate agent not giving you sufficient warning. Yeah. So there was a mistake the judge made. But... This is the interesting issue on the appeal, and it's one I think people should just generally know about. Because what happened is the couple who was uh, unsuccessful at trial, the people who didn't follow through on the deal, appealed. Uh, and in the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal said, yes, indeed, the judge did make a mistake. Uh, the judge just seemed to misunderstand that they had said, yes, the privilege is waived, the lawyer can provide um, evidence uh, at the trial. So the judge made a mistake. Uh, but despite that uh, just human mistake, uh, the Court of Appeal pointed out sort of a fundamental premise of what is required to succeed uh, when you are suing somebody in this way, saying that, hey, really, the real estate agent is their fault. They should have given me a better warning, right? Yeah. And the point is this, that a defendant's negligence without more does not make out a cause of action. Instead, an additional element is required. You need to show that even if there was negligence, like even if the real estate agent should have done more, provided a, a stronger warning than just saying, talk to a lawyer immediately, right? Yeah. The, you have to also prove that that negligence, if that was negligent, must cause the loss, right? So you need to prove, hey, the real estate agent had some obligation to do this. Furthermore, you need to prove the real estate agent didn't you know, act sufficiently, wasn't a strong enough warning about, hey, you could be on the hook for a bunch of money here. But finally, you need to prove that had they done what you say they should have done, which is to say warn you about, hey, you could be on the hook for a lot of money, right? Uh, you don't get to succeed in your claim. Uh, and here, the people who didn't follow through on the contract had some experience. They'd brought 10 previous properties, including rental properties and things, so they weren't sort of a bape in the woods. Yeah. Uh, and moreover, the evidence of the uh, husband, uh, in this case, of the couple that had entered into the agreement to purchase it, 
in his examination for discovery and testimony at trial was that he was firm and unwavering and that there were no circumstances under which he would have considered completing the contract with or without legal advice. And so the, the reason, even though the judge made a mistake uh, about whether the lawyer was allowed to give evidence, why the appeal didn't succeed um, is that even if the real estate agent had told the person in absolutely no uncertain terms, don't do this. You're going to be on the hook for $100,000. I strongly recommend you don't do it. Terrible idea. You know, complete the contract, get the house. You're just too late. Don't back out. Yeah. Because the purchaser was clear that no matter what they were told, they just weren't going to complete the contract. It didn't matter whether the real estate agent should have given them a stronger warning or not. It would have made no difference on the evidence of the uh, people that didn't follow through on the deal. They had just made an irrevocable decision. They were not going to buy this house despite having signed the contract the day before. And so that's why in this case, the mistake made no difference. And even though it's a clear mistake, it's a meaningless mistake uh, because whether you draw some adverse inference or not, and no matter what advice was received, they just weren't going to follow through. Uh, and so that's an important thing for people to know about. You need to actually have, in addition to proving that somebody was careless or didn't do something, you need to prove that that failure, if it was a failure, is what caused you to lose money. And here, they didn't do that. And so the real estate agent is uh, off the hook, including on the appeal. Uh, and the other takeaway for people, of course, is when you enter into a contract to purchase something like this, if you don't do it, uh, and if the party selling it winds up having to sell for less, guess what? You're going to be on the hook for exactly the difference between those two figures. And so that could be a lot of money. Uh, and so uh, when you enter into these kinds of agreements, take them seriously. Uh, you're not going to get out of it by uh, putting a stop payment on your check uh, or telling your real estate agent, I don't want to keep going with this. Uh, you are still going to be on the hook. And because the amount of money involved can be a lot, it's going to probably go to court. So follow through on your deals. Don't try to back out. Uh, and uh, if you're trying to blame somebody else uh, for your decision, you know, you're going to need to prove uh, not only should they have done more, but that them doing more would have had some impact on stopping you <laughs> from your bad uh, decision to not uh, follow through with the contract. We have about four minutes left. Is the wording of a COVID-19 ticket that came in the amount of more than $5,000 sufficient is the next one. Yes. <laughs> All right. There, let's wrap this up. So they, this case involved a, a ticket for somebody who crossed the border during the uh, height of COVID uh, and was given a ticket under the Quarantine Act for $5,750. And the ticket said, quote, failure to comply with an order prohibiting or subjecting to any condition the entry into Canada, close quote. That's all the ticket says. <laughs> and so... The argument uh, that the uh, person who got the ticket made was, well, that's not sufficient. That doesn't tell me why I've got this ticket, right? It, it doesn't mm -hmm. say, well, what, what, you know, what condition did I not follow? What order was it? Uh, <laughs> you know, you haven't told me enough, right? You've just given me an amount and said they haven't complied with an order that you haven't specified. Uh, and so a judge in this case had to decide, is that enough? Uh, does a ticket need to specify more clearly what this ticket is about? Uh, and there's a bunch of law on that, right, as one might expect. And there's a bunch of law on that not only for tickets, but also for when people are charged with like criminal offenses and so on. Uh, and 
the overarching principle is that there must be sufficient evidence to tell somebody what is this transaction, what is this about, right, so that a person can reasonably answer it, right, or defend themselves or decide what they should be doing. Uh, and I should say in the past, there was a lot more attention paid to things like the exact wording of things, sort of technical arguments, uh, prior to, I think, the charter coming into effect, where there's now some scope for judges to consider sort of fairness arguments within the uh, sort of structure of constitutional rights, which are settled in the charter. Mm -hmm. And I guess my real politic of it would be that in the past, when that didn't exist, I think sometimes the efforts uh, to, uh, or the decisions based on things like the precise wording of something, got a lot more uh, traction, uh, because in some cases, they were sort of the safety valve for what might seem unfair, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I just say, well, look, you know, there's no constitutional right to anything here, but, you know, I find that, uh, you know, this doesn't quite comply with this or that uh, act or requirement, so it's, uh, I'm quashing this thing, <laughs> right? A little bit of uh, sort of fairness on the side or basis to do that. But uh, uh, the sort of more current approach is one that is premised on sort of the idea of fairness and whether the, uh, all in all the circumstances, did the person have sufficient information to sort of know what they were being alleged to have done? And here, uh, the uh, judge found that indeed there was lots of information that the uh, the the uh, alleged uh, failure was not putting a mask on when crossing the border. Mm. That was a requirement at one point, right? Yeah. And so the judge found no. It was absolutely clear to this man what the problem was. He wouldn't put a mask on when crossing the border. Uh, and furthermore, the Crown had given him lots of information and confirmed that, provided disclosure material to him about that. And so the judge found that it wasn't unfair, even though this wording was far from ideal, uh, because the man in all those circumstances knew full well what this was all about, right? It wasn't just charging somebody with, you've done something wrong, wondering, well, what on earth was that? It was clear to the man the dispute here was about his refusal to put a mask on. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, as a result, the matter will proceed, uh, and uh, I guess we'll see whether the man has any other uh, defenses to the $5,750 ticket. That's a lot of money, but uh, uh, there it is. It didn't get uh, quashed on the basis of the wording. Uh, and so, uh, again, the approach is, is it fair, and is this enough to identify what this is all about so a person can proceed accordingly? All right. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking. Thank you so much as always. Until next week. Thanks so much. Have a great day.